has got questions, he's got answers Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway He's got problems, he won't solve them But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face Science, faith, and life Friends, welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where you believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. This week we're doing an interview show instead of the usual um, question and response format because I had a conversation with a man named Jeremy Courtney uh, who has an incredible story to tell um, that I think many of us will relate to because uh, Jeremy grew up in Texas and grew up uh, with an understanding of American exceptionalism and, and conservative uh, religious ideas uh, that, that were the framing of his whole life. And he moved to the Middle East to, in his own words, love his enemies. And in the process realized that the people over there weren't his enemies at all. It's a really compelling conversation. I hope you enjoy Jeremy's story uh, as much as I did. And um, well, let's just get right into the interview. So the other day, I got a text message from my friend Propaganda, who's a friend of mine, he's a hip-hop artist, and he said that I really needed to talk to somebody named Jeremy Courtney um, about the work he was doing in the Middle East. And I thought, well, um, Prop usually knows what he's talking about, so I think I'll try that. So. Um, kind of, I think our producers and, and, and folks connected. And now here we find ourselves, uh, in the magic of remote internet audio connecting. So we're, we spent out 15 minutes just trying to get this call working so we could record it. Uh, and amidst all of that confusion, thanks for sticking with it. I'm so pleased to welcome Jeremy Courtney to ask science, Mike. We're here. We're doing it. Did it so uh, for someone who's not familiar with preemptive love? What, how, what how's your how's your explanation usually begin? Hmm, man, I, I don't have a canned response. Uh, preemptive love exists to end war, and uh, I guess we came to that conclusion because my wife and I and our family we've been living in the Middle East for 15 years, living in Iraq for about 13 of those years. We've lived through a number of cycles of war. Uh, we've expanded our work from Iraq into Syria and Libya and Iran at times, and even now in Mexico. And I think, yeah, we've just pieced together a, a story, and we've seen the patterns of war, and we've seen people not be at war and then go to war and then choose to stop being at war again. And so we, we want to bring the lessons we've learned and scale those up globally to, uh, to create a community of peacemakers around the world who's, who's working together to end war. How do you go from living in Texas to deciding to move your family to the Middle East? Hmm. That's, that, I mean, that's, that's like, that is a wild, wild story. Yeah, so... I'm 40 years old, which means I had just gotten married and just graduated college when the terror attacks on September 11th went down in 2001. And, you know, at that point in time, given where I'd grown up and who all my influences were, 
I, I, we as a family set out into the world uh, it, to be in response to September 11th. And what that meant at that time is that we set out as Christian missionaries. If, if Muslims are so against us, if, um, if they hate our way of life, as was the, the kind of talking point of the day, then we can be a response to that. We can go to them and help them see the error of their ways and come to see things more the way we do. And then we would all be better off and we would all be safe. Um, looking back on it now, I would say it a little differently from my vantage point today, though my intentions, our intentions were pure I think it's a, the story is a little more complicated than I understood it at the time, and I now believe that we were somehow weaponized into the war on terror, and that mm. is somehow what landed us in the Middle East. Mm. How? <laughs> is that your whole question? How? <laughs> no. So, like, so there's like really polished interviewers in the world, and I'm not one of them. <laughs> Uh, what I do is I actually listen to people talk, and then when you get done talking, I'm still processing it. what you said. And so I started I we had asking one of those the internet question. glitches. No, I didn't have the question formed when I began it. <laughs> I, what I'm saying is, in that there's there's an interesting point of revelation there, and when you're saying we went with this idea, and we would have used this language, but now we that experience has in some way been refactored or recontextualized in your whole life. Um, and I'm just really curious about that transformation that this program as science, Mike, it's a weird audience in that there's like current Christians, post Christians, and I've never been a Christian in pretty equal number listening. Um, and so I would imagine any story of, um, shifting views centered on matters of faith tends to be pretty interesting to a large group of, uh, or a large segment of the audience. And yeah. I, I feel like a lot of cards are shown there. We saw it this way. Now we see it differently. I just wonder if you'd be willing to tell us a little bit about what that transformation looked like. Well, one of the reasons I use the word weaponized is because, um, we were a part of a, a particular, tradition that I think made us very malleable, very um, pliable material for use in, in a kind of state-sponsored religion, which I, I think mm. evangelical Christianity largely has been for, for most of the history of the United States. And um, what, so our context and our environment and all of our inputs socially and theologically and culturally meant that... I didn't know any Muslims. Um, so I was a blank chalkboard on which to be told who are Muslims, what is Islam, what is the rest of the world. They do, in fact, hate us, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the strength of that from a propagandist standpoint is that, you know, you can, you can write whatever you want on my blank slate. The risk, on the other hand, is that when you successfully launch people like me out into the world and we come to find the world to be less antagonistic, more generous, 
more humane than we were told it would be, then the, the house of cards is at risk of falling apart. And once I started meeting Muslims for the first time, once I started knowing them on their own terms, I sort of presented them with this coloring book picture that I had of them, of Islam, of their countries. And they were like, that's your picture of us? Here, give me that eraser. Let me erase some of what you're bringing to the table. And, and now here, give me those crayons and let me color in for you the picture of what it means to be a Muslim, of what it means to be Iraqi, of what it means to be whatever. Let me color it in for you. This is, this is how I know myself. This is what life here is like. And once I had a replaced picture, I, I no longer wanted to dominate these people. I no longer wanted to beat them. I no longer wanted to win. I, I had a greater sense that we were the same and we were in it together. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I think that's part of the like sustaining power of the American story and the American Christianity story is like these notions of American exceptionalism keep us mm -hmm. relatively ignorant and insulated from other cultural experiences. And I'm yeah. struck over and over and over how those preconceptions just collapse <laughs> yeah. with any exposure to inclusion yeah. and diversity. That's right. Um, I've thought so often, you know, I, I, I read pretty recently, though I don't have a citation, so this could be wrong, that 75% of white Americans don't have any non-white friends. Hmm. And that that data point helps me understand the enduring power of some of these us versus them mythologies where American Christians are the good and right people seeking to save and protect the world and other people are enemies who are only enemies because they just don't understand how good we are. And mm -hmm. that's certainly a narrative that survived for years into my adulthood. Um, and it took, I mean, just like you, encounters with actual people to realize my map of navigating the world was really bad. I, I really paused before saying the word bad, but bad in its impact on people that uh, my yeah. good intentions were often weaponized in a way that made me an active participant in the oppression of other people. Um, is that kind of where the pivot in your work kind of from missions work to what seems like more of a humanitarian focus? Was that kind of transition part of the catalyst? Yeah, it was very much a part of the catalyst because um, we went out looking to win. We went out kind of with a worldview. I, I now would characterize that chapter of my life as everyone is wrong except me, you know, in parentheticals. Um, and once I started realizing that, one, once I could not sustain that narrative anymore, that everyone is wrong, um, some elements of faith fell away, and, and certainly some of the fuel in the tank, or, or all of the fuel in the tank for dominating and conquering and winning other people, that, that fell away. We ended up moving into Iraq. Um, we had lived in Turkey for those initial years and ended up moving into Iraq, which was at, at war. 
the U.S. had just invaded. It was kind of the height of sectarian violence. The American interventionist project had gone completely off the rails, and we were looking for a way to turn over a new leaf in a lot of ways, leave behind that that initial chapter and start afresh. And I, I think moving into the the wake of a war, um, moving into kind of a, a country at war was a way of starting something new, starting fresh. And, um, you know, some elements were slower to fall away than others. I think our, our heads and hearts were out a little bit ahead of other parts of our personal development on these matters. But, but yeah, we moved into Iraq looking to turn over a new leaf and, uh, didn't have a hard time finding people to befriend people who welcomed us and befriended us and communities in need that we could get to work helping hmm. each other. Hmm. I know what I want to ask. I'm trying to figure out how to ask it. Maybe just right on the nose is the way to go. How do you navigate being a white American in the Middle East? I mean, Iraq and Syria, to me, are kind of the epicenter of... No, seriously, we're not an empire, American foreign policy. <laughs> and then the response to the chaos that we have such a major part in creating, like a white saviorism in response. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, since you're actually there, and the things I read about in the news are just um, like part of your daily life, how you navigate that tension. Yeah, a couple things. I think it helps on a level that I'd already lived through a cycle of white saviorism before landing in Iraq. I'd already mm. seen the futility mm. of some of that. Um, the, the particular lens that I'd already come to the end of the road on was was the the religious version of that, but I hadn't, to be fair, I hadn't tried the humanitarian version of it yet, and I still think I had some things to unlearn, but but I had at least seen, in general, the futility of white saviorism, you know, at a macro level once. The other thing I would say is um, as it relates to the United States, at least, um, I think Syrians and Iraqis and Iranians and Turks, I have often found to be better at distinguishing between the brand of America, the government or administration regime of America at any one time, mm. Mm. And, the, and the American people. Um, they do a better job at that, I think, than a lot of Americans do when we look at a Russia or China or Iraq, like we are more susceptible because of what you've already named, our lack of exposure to the world, our our drunkenness on our own narrative and point of view, um, our dominant position in global society. We are more prone to look at things in a flat way, kind of monolithically. Um, whereas when you come from a minority position globally and you've had some more experiences, and you have to live at peace with your neighbors, I think you you develop a finer sensibility for distinguishing between 
governments and their people. Hmm. And I, I think then, therefore, we, we were just welcomed as Americans, not as the American empire embodied. Um, wow. so, certainly, there were people who were suspicious of us, and for good reason. We met over and over and over to this day, genuine victims who have real grievances against the American military or uh, American allies in the region or whatever. But, um, but I, I would still say that even those victims, in most cases, even those with grievances, have, have found a way to sit with us in the pain and ultimately welcome us into their lives. Hmm. In that welcoming in people's lives and with a mission of ending war, which is like so laudable and also seems completely impossible, <laughs> right? Like, what would I want more than the end of all war? Gosh, boy, that's hard to th even imagine, right? Like, I'm, a, I'm not what you'd call a hawk, right? <laughs> um, but it, I mean, that's it. It seems from my naive position, we could sooner reverse climate change than end war. So, do, I mean, do you see where I'm going with this? Like, what, yeah, what are you doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? It's such a big mission, it's almost impossible to imagine what you could do, what step two is out of those 12,000 steps. Yeah. Um, like, what, how, do you, how do you manifest that mission in relationship with people today? Yeah, so I think from the jump, we've wanted to end war. I mean, we've got military language embedded in our name. We are the preemptive love coalition. So we've been circling around some of this, the essence of it for whatever, we're at 13 some years now, but I don't think we had the guts to say, I didn't have the guts to say at a top level, we exist to end war until this last year. And I think part of what's finally given me the guts to say it, to name it and to lean into it and claim it is what we've lived through in those intervening 12, 13 years. Um, I've lived through enough cycles now. I've seen how men and women make war. And I've come to the conclusion that if men and women can make war, then men and women can stop. And that's not just theory. I've actually seen us stop. I've lived through the cycles where the bombing actually stops, the ceasefires, the, the various stages of coming back together and rebuilding society together. And um, we've got our own internal data, but you can also look at global data that tells us that violence is down. When, when we set our minds to something and when we work on our personal development and we, we improve economic markers and things like that, war and violence numbers are way down globally. And I, I don't think this is just a pipe dream. We don't war over exactly the same things that we used to war over, or at least we don't do it on the scale that we used to. And so um, we might very well see new points of contention over which we war 
introduced into our lives in the coming decades, but there's a lot of reason to believe that we can stop killing each other right now. And I don't think the end of war has to require full-blown harmony and peace and kumbaya sing-alongs everywhere. It, it could merely just mean ceasefires. Just mm. the conclusion that to do harm to each other ultimately is going to hurt my kids more than to just let some of this status quo play out a little bit. So um, that's one response. To, to be a little more on the nose, you asked what Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday look like. Um, we treat violence like a disease. And we're not the only ones who relate to violence epidemiologically. There are others out there who see this connection. But we, the World Health Organization has a model that we all kind of know intuitively as to how we stop the spread of disease. You, you have to respond fast to kind of patient zero. That's step one. Step two is you work to shore up the vulnerable. So we, we give vaccinations to kids. We, we sequester more vulnerable populations in times of outbreak, whatever. And then step three is we change the behaviors that lead to the spread of disease. That's why we learn to wear condoms and we wash our hands and things like that. We change our behaviors and that stops the spread of disease. And we apply that to violence. We respond fast on the front lines. Right when violence breaks out, we try to get there Why bombs are still falling or snipers are still sniping because how you show up or don't show up in times of violence has a profound impact on whether it spreads or whether we can stop the, the spread early on. And then at that step two phase, we work to protect the vulnerable. And we see a lot of that through the lens of jobs because economic markers are a huge indicator of whether there's a huge correlation between economics and violence. And when we can provide jobs for people, both at an individual level and a community national level, it, there are lessons to be learned and there are decreases in violence that can be had by economic improvement. It, it protects young men, for example, from being recruited into violence when they have the jobs that they need to care for their family. Mm -hmm. um, so our jobs work is a big part of how we shore up the vulnerable and stop the spread of violence. And then... Our community work, our third step, is how we change the ideas that lead to violence. And that's a lot of inner work. It's a lot of inter, interpersonal work. How do we see the other? How do we relate to ourselves? How do we wield our identities, faith, politics, national, ethnic? Um, so those are our, th our three main things that we spend the week doing, week in, week out. Hmm. Ask Science Mike would be impossible without my friends at BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is an online counseling service um, that lets you find a therapist really easily. Uh, I've been using BetterHelp for months now, and I love the way that I can talk to my therapist from the comfort of my own home instead of having to drive across town and try to find someone and all the things that hold people back uh, from usually finding a good therapist, uh, which also is really cool because uh, BetterHelp will actually find a therapist for you. You go to betterhelp.com slash science Mike, and from that URL, you fill out a brief questionnaire, and then they'll match you with a therapist that you're going to love. And if you don't, you can find a new therapist at any time for no additional cost 
any reason at all, they'll find someone new for you. Uh, these are uh, licensed therapists. These are actual, real therapists who are trained and certified in all kinds of mental health challenges. And best of all, it's affordable and protects your privacy. Uh, you can get started today just by going to betterhelp.com slash science mike, where uh, you'll not only be able to finish the questionnaire, but get 10% off your first month's service with BetterHelp. I wasn't fast enough to write it down, but uh, something you said right up front there about the way we respond to violence and the way we show up to violence as it's happening so impacts the spread of violence. Yeah. Um, I have a talk that I give sometimes called The Science of Peacemaking, which kind of digs into mm. the anthropological and sociological phenomena that create war in primates, especially humans. Mm. Um, only two warring species of primate, that's chimpanzees and humans, and of the two, we are the most war-ready. So chimps have a greater wisdom about war-making than, than Homo sapiens do. Mm. And um part of where i take that talk um is the notion that in the data the most effective the co most cost effective way of dealing with war is to prevent it through economic empowerment definitely um and that it's not close <laughs> <laughs> that yeah preemptively economically empowering people is wildly more cost effective than industrial scale conflict forget human cost which is massive i mean let like uh, let's assume for a second you don't actually have some belief in the value of human life at all and you're a total capitalist and all you care about is money um these conflicts are wildly expensive in capital and in human life uh, and I guess all I'm saying is a very long and roundabout way is thank you for showing me something I've read about in research actually happening in the world. Like, I am really encouraged right now. Because um, I'm always frustrated that we have all this wonderful information Mm. Um, that we so rarely put into practice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, that's probably pretty awkward. Like you're just talking to a guy you've never talked to before. Um, but <laughs> I, I have a tear rolling down my cheek right now. Um, because the notion that you've lived these lessons in your life where you went from othering people to seeing them from rescuing to being with them and ultimately understanding that the power of aid and intervention is in a sustainable empowerment of local populations. These are really good lessons mm. for all of us to learn. And they're not, they're not just about, uh, you know, those people over there. I think that's the, that's been, I guess, among the more painful and then 
therefore profound realizations is this is not just a, this isn't a Iraq problem. This isn't a, a Syria right. problem alone. This is, this is the stuff that's common to all of us wherever we live. And it's still salient here in the United States and on the Korean Peninsula and, you know, globally. Well, we want to build a wall instead of support a Mexican economy. We want to punitively punish people for selling drugs instead of addressing the socioeconomic factors that create the demand for drugs. Uh, we want to invest in larger police forces instead of investing in actual American citizens <laughs> to be economically empowered. Um, that this, this backward way of thinking is so common in American society, almost uniquely common, um, but not, as you say, it's happening all over the world in different regimes and different control systems and structures. Um, so often our common sense approach is wrong. And, and yet, like you know, and you've taught others on before, when your highest mode of development is a kind of tribalistic, antagonistic, us versus them way of seeing the world, um, that is the most sensible response. You, you literally do not have a category for responding differently. And, I, and we don't get to higher levels of personal and societal development if we stay surrounded by all the sameness that that tribalism encircles around us. So it becomes a bit of a snake eating its tail kind of dynamic where even if we in theory want to be more compassionate or want to live up to our ideals or want to break out, the, the question that we're trying to solve in that third piece that I talked about changing the ideas that lead to war is how do we help more and more and more and more of us have those empathic responses where people humbly offer to take our picture that we've created of them, do a little bit of erasing, do a little bit of coloring in of their own life and experiences, and then gently hand it back to us so that we can learn the lessons from their life that we need to learn to understand how these policies and theologies and whatever so negatively in fact, impact their lived experience. Mm. Mm. While we were working out the audio stuff on this call, uh, this wasn't planned. I, I literally hopped on Facebook, which I never do. Um, and it's almost creepy how <laughs> uncanny the information these machines show us is sometimes. Because it popped up in my Facebook feed, someone sharing an article of yours that you'd written um, on preemptive love They're listening about to um, reporting on failure. Do you remember mm -hmm. the, the piece in question? Mm -hmm. That was r really powerful for me to read, you know two minutes before we started our conversation um, where you kind of lean into the challenges of doing important work and the fear we have about failing and people finding out about us failing. And um, you even talked about 
uh, if you don't mind, I want to read the quote of an individual who after um, you were doing a food distribution where where cans of food were damaged in transit and then rotted in in transit. And uh, an individual came mm-hmm. up to you and said, you come here, you give us rotten food, you take our pictures, and you leave. And the reason I say that, obviously, is not because I want to attack you. You printed it. But because when we try to do work yeah. of significance, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in a system where many people's primary motive is just fundraising. Many people's primary motive is just good posturing on social media. Um, the, the, the trope of white people taking pictures with dark-skinned children. Um, but here you name that and name a process. And I just yep. wonder if you would talk a little bit about how you came to see sharing failure as a value instead of a liability. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of a standing column that we do, so to speak, where when it feels appropriate, when it's at a, you know, a significant enough level, we're not sharing every internal conversation that goes a little awry or whatever, but you know, when there when there are things of foregoing communal concern that we think we need to own up to, um, that would impact trust in us, whether that's with our donors or whether that's with the communities that we serve, um, then we have this standing column that we use called failure report that I I speak to things that we've screwed up and how we're learning from them and how we're trying to make it right. And um, I, I mean, one way of saying it is that it's just uh, a lot of organizational and leadership mm. energy goes into not being found out. That sucks up all kinds of creative energy and forces that could be used for good. And so we just, we learned early on, so I, I've glossed over this part of our story, but early on in Iraq, we started by providing life-saving heart surgeries to children. And so we were only working with maybe 10 or 20 children in an entire year. And we would bring our donors along the journey. Will you fund so-and-so's heart surgery? Yes, we will. Great. Now walk with us for the next three months as we get little Muhammad ready for surgery, take him to surgery. Oh, he came out of surgery. Now he's Mm. in the ICU. And oh my gosh, Muhammad died. There's, There's no way to cover that up. Um, if you've brought a whole community of people along with some individual child's story, you can't just move on to the next child. You have to tell the truth about what's happened. And so I think it was in our DNA from, from early on to tell hard truths and break our own hearts and break other people's hearts in pursuit of trying to save lives. And I think as our work morphed into kind of the Civil War and ISIS era, and, you know, we were doing things on, on scales of like hundreds of thousands of people at a time, helping hundreds of thousands of people. We just have done our best to keep that, that ethos intact, that when things go wrong or they just don't turn out the way we hope, we're going to tell the truth about it. And rather than cover it up or try and polish it up or spin it, uh, we just think we can help everyone rise together and be better off for telling the truth. And then we, we don't spend as much negative energy trying to 
try to do the the spin thing and we can use that energy for the next positive thing has that been your experience that being more honest about when things have gone wrong that you do find that energy is freed up yeah and i think people are so smart like by this point in supporting public service organizations and charities and ngos like um people are savvy enough to know that it couldn't possibly all go well all the time. I don't think anyone actually has that expectation of us. Um, And so there's an interesting, ironically, there's a wide open space for charities and nonprofits to tell these failure report stories. And that's part of what we started seeing early on is like, we actually could play a leadership role here. This isn't just for us in our community. This could actually set a standard that maybe more organizations would take up. And the more that we tell the truth, the more we increase trust writ large in organizations that are daring to tell the truth. Because as an industry, there's still a lot of people who don't trust nonprofits very much. And there's still a lot of skepticism or suspicion. And that means there's just this wide open space to to be more honest and it actually rings truer to people Mm. than the shiny Instagram accounts alone do. So for people who are listening right now who are frustrated with war and the impacts of war, which I I can just go ahead and tell you is a vast majority of this audience um, who are frustrated because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to help. They see what's happening on in the news cycle. They look at Syria and they're just wrecked. They're just wrecked by what their own country is involved in doing. How would you advise them to support people on the front lines and and what could they do to get involved? Yeah, I'll, I'll say that... Um... There is something about distance from a problem that can lead us in one of two directions. If we're not proximate to the problem, then we can just be ignorant to it, and it cannot cause us any great concern. We know that sort of ignorance meets apathy, whatever. But the another thing about distance is also true, and that is that distance can give us a sense of impotence mm-hmm. and lack of agency, and we we have empathy but we lack agency and it can lead us to really dark, sad, disgruntled places because we're full up with empathy for other people, but we just don't feel like we have any role to play. And I'll say that's true of me as well, even though I've got a whole organization that I can help leverage into a situation or whatever, even me, I feel more hopeless about Syria, more hopeless about Iraq when I am far from them, more hopeless about our work in Juarez when I'm far from it than I do when I'm in it with my friends, with my people. And um, I think a lot of it just comes down to forgetting forgetting the agency that, that we have, the agency that I have even. I, I can forget it at times when I'm far away. And so... Um, I, I guess my message would be to remember that we 
we do each individually matter because in the very least we matter collectively. We matter collectively in how we vote. We matter collectively in how we give. We matter collectively in how we speak about our neighbors. And I think over these 15 years of being abroad, I still live in Iraq today. Um, over these 15 years, I am now able to piece together a story um, that in my, in my view of the world now, how we talk about each other in Alabama or Southern California has direct correlation to who, which one of my neighbors gets a bomb dropped in their front yard. And so I think our words about Mexicans actually have profound impact on Syrians. Our, our words about the LGBTQ community have profound impact on Iraqis. Our words about Muslims have profound impact on Mexicans. It's all interconnected. These things don't happen in isolation from one another. And so I think we can take up our collective sense of agency and responsibility that, that when we speak well and bring nuance and compassion to one side of the conversation, we are we are hopefully helping impact in multiple directions, multiple vectors as well. To be more on the nose, I would say we are a community of peacemakers with you doing this work and, and we can't do it without you. So I would urge and invite all of our friends listening to join us in this work. Um, our work is really sustained by a community of monthly donors who at $1 a month or $1,000 a month help make this work go round. And while we accept one-off gifts and they help us tremendously, the monthly stuff really starts allowing us to look six months in advance or 12 months in advance and go, oh, wow, this community is going to be with us 12 months from now. Well, we can really start biting off some bigger ideas and taking some bigger moonshots. If, if we have a community this large that's decided mm. to be monthly donors with us, then we can do this much more. Yeah, I mean, I've... I'm not a nonprofit. <laughs> I'm a guy with a podcast, but I have certainly found the difference between monthly support and people who just send a thing once is it's night and day. Um, it, it lets you plan for the future and it lets you know how much to budget over time in a way that you can't with, with one times and one offs. And um, that really is valuable work. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if people are, are like, great, I'm in. Where do they go to, to join you uh, with a monthly gift? So I'll just repeat all the information because I know it can be hard to remember all this. My name's Jeremy Courtney, CEO, founder of Preemptive Love Coalition. And one of our main like taglines that you can find us via out in the wild is love anyway. And so um, I'll, I'll say loveanyway.com is one of the easiest maybe phrases to remember to find your way to us, loveanyway.com. Um, but you can find it through Googling the organization name or any of that as well. <laughs> Jeremy, I'm so sorry. I have a marketing background. Uh, that's where I came from. And so I'm always like, communicate a clear call to action. <laughs> that's what the second question literally was like, is there a specific URL that we can have without the context of anything else? <laughs> So sorry about that. That's weird. So did I? Did I get there? You did. You absolutely did. Uh, but I've noticed like a really common the, thing when I'm on shows is people don't expect me to be so on the nose with it. 
like people are busy, right? Like someone is listening, they're yeah. there, they're driving, they have at most seven chunks of working memory. So I'm always like, give them let's let me ask a question where there is literally one chunk of information to carry, and that thing, dear listener, is loveanyway.com. That's your gateway to being involved in everything that Jeremy just talked about. That's right. Is there anything else you want to tell everybody listening? My new book came out a couple weeks ago, and I'm super proud of it. Would love to uh, get that into as many of your hands as possible. I think it it uh, stands as a uh, invitation of tries to cast a vision into this more beautiful world that I think a lot of us are reaching for, but maybe we just haven't we haven't seen. Uh, what it looks like amidst some of the world's worst pain. And so I'm trying to walk us through some of the harder things and maybe a lot of us live with in our daily life to prove what's possible, to demonstrate what's possible and to kind of seed the idea that if this stuff works in the midst of Iraq and Syria and some of the world's worst conflicts, then I, I deeply believe that it works wherever you live as well. Okay. And my copy's on the way and I think it's here tomorrow. So I'm Looking forward to uh, checking it out myself. I just grabbed a copy on Amazon yesterday. So, um, thank you. Thanks for taking the time today, and thanks for. I don't. I don't know how to say this. Thanks for willing to grow and change and talk about that publicly. I think so often in the culture many of us grew up in. There's a really performative aspect. There's a need to look like we have it together and we have it figured out and to not admit the ways in which our our lifestyle might have been fulfilling for us but caused challenges for other people. Mm. And Jeremy, I'm really inspired by the openness in which you not only refuse to be disheartened and give up and do important work, but as you do so, to be a committed learner and a transparent grower um i've been really inspired by our conversation today thanks man appreciate that means a lot thank you i'd like to thank my patrons on patreon who make ask science mike possible andrew galucky for pre-production greg nordine for production and sound design uh, caitlin hermstad for production print cradle for management services Thanks for listening, everyone, and I can't wait to talk with you next week. Mm-hmm.